0: And welcome to another episode of Subliminally Correct. Taylor, what's up for today? All right, Alex. Well, what we have up for today is part two of our midterm
2: election victory and concession speeches. So as you remember, in part one, we were taking those speeches and really breaking them down. All of the metaphor, all of the story, all of the rhetorical devices, the persuasion, the influence tactics. In this one, we're going to continue with this trend and we're going to be listening to two more very, very powerful speeches that... Really, out of all the speeches that were given, these are two of the best, especially the final one here in the episode. Now, the first one we're going to be getting into, though, is actually a concession speech. And this was a concession speech by Beto O'Rourke. We already heard from Ted Cruz. And now we want to hear what happened on the other side of the aisle, which, by the way, is no less motivating and inspiring to the base. And it's really interesting how he handles this. So let's go ahead and take a listen to this one.
1: El Paso has produced some really great teams over the years. And I am very lucky that I got to be part of one that came out of this community. And for the last 22 months, has been traveling every single county of Texas, being there to listen to and show up for every single one of us. I am as inspired, I'm as hopeful, as I have ever been in my life. And tonight's loss does nothing to diminish the way that I feel about Texas or this country. Getting to be with and to see all of you tonight reminds me why we set out to do this in the first place. We're not about being against anybody not about being against another political party we're not going to define ourselves by who or what we are against or afraid of or scared of we are a great people ambitious defined by our aspirations the hard work that we are willing to commit in order to achieve them. Every single one of us, Republicans, Democrats, Independents, from the biggest of cities, from the smallest of towns, the people of Texas want to do and will do the great work of this country.
0: Well, oh, he really looks like he was prepared for another night <laughs> up on the stage <laughs> right. there with the smoke behind him and the with the rock band drum set. Wonder how much the tickets cost.
2: <laughs> yeah. Okay. We hear here uh, the thematic idea, right? We're a great people, ambitious. We're defined by our aspirations. The people of Texas we know that general idea okay the people of texas who specifically want to do the great work of this country so who is it that is great aren't aren't all texans great who who exactly is it that is great in his model of the
0: world what work are they going to be doing
2: yeah what what sort of jobs are they going to to have you know what what does that exactly mean you know so do you define work as jobs do you define work as Something else? Do you need to find work as playing in the rock band? <laughs> uh, maybe, that, maybe that. Maybe that is the thing here. And then we hear almost this, you know, callback to uh, *Tale of Two Cities*. You know, it was the best of times; it was the worst of times, from the biggest of cities to the smallest of towns. Okay, from East Texas to West Texas, from the Panhandle to the Valley. That second part, of course, was a Ted Cruz quote. But you know, we hear here. This is the same rhetorical device being used again and again and again. So from the biggest of cities to the smallest of towns, and notice his presentation, how he delivers it. It's incredibly, it's it's almost as though he has a an emotional felt sense of it, and yet it's prepared speech. But this is, this is how Beto got so far in this race, is because very good politician, very talented, very good at having those prepared ideas, but making them sound as though he just came up with it right off the
0: cuff. All right, and now let's get to the next part where he talks about the time of division.
1: What I said and what I pledged on behalf of all of us is that at this time of division, the country's been as polarized as I can remember it in my life. All this bitterness that defines so much of the national conversation today, if there's anything that we can do to help him in his position of public trust to ensure that Texas helps to lead this country in a way that brings us back together around the big things that we want to achieve, whether that's making sure that we face any threats arrayed against this country, whether that means that we are there for every single one of us who needs a helping hand so that we can live to our full potential, the ability to see a doctor go to the hospital, receive the medication that you need to be alive. I want to work with him. I will work with anyone to make sure that we can lead on that. You amazing, you amazing public school educators who work so hard and do so much for so many of us. I'll work with him. I'll work with anyone, anytime, anywhere to make sure in the same way that you've been there for us that now we can be there for you not as democrats not as republicans but as texans as americans
0: and here he's talking about supporting ted cruz and and drawing a contrast between all of the national bitterness and and back to you know local civility he's trying to uh, uh almost tie civility to himself and the local level uh, and, and illustrate that that politics doesn't have to be bitter and divisive because I am modeling that.
2: Right. So he has much more of that inspirational message. He has much of more of that moving toward or possibility message, you know, much like Barack Obama. He's not going to be talking as much about the things to move away from, about how horrible everything is. In fact, he's probably as, as far apart from that as a candidate could be. Um, and yet we see the difference between a progressive, you know, better work and a progressive, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, we, we hear a complete different direction of the motivation, you know, between them. Okay, what is it that, you know, Better is saying here that is, you know, he has that inspirational language. So we hear, hear things like, okay, the big things we want to achieve so we can live up to our full potential. What does that mean? Well, he goes on to define some of what it means for him. The ability to go to a doctor. The amazing public school educators. And so, look, he just lost this race. Okay, it was a close race, but he just lost this race, and yet he is still campaigning. You know, this is why everyone keeps talking, even though he said he's not going to run in 2020. This is why everyone keeps talking about better running in 2020 is because the guy keeps campaigning. He's not... Here, giving a concession speech, really, it's almost as though he's giving the same speech as if he actually won.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting to see exactly, you know, what he could be framing this for. And so let's get on to the next portion here, uh, where he might be giving a couple more reasons why he might be a good presidential candidate.
1: I want to thank this amazing campaign of people, not a dime from a single pack all people, all the time, in every single part of Texas. All of you showing the country how you do this. I'm so fucking proud of you guys. And David, and Jody, and Chris, and Cynthia, and everyone who works on this campaign. Every volunteer, every ambassador, everyone who knocked on doors, everyone who made phone calls, everyone who allowed themselves to hope and to believe and to be inspired by one another and to turn that into action and into votes and to do something that no one, no one thought was possible, to build a campaign like this one, solely comprised of people, people from all walks of life coming together damning the differences and deciding that what unites us is far stronger than the color of our skin how many generations we can count ourselves an american or whether we just got here yesterday who we love who we pray to whether we pray at all who we voted for last time none of that small stuff matters now it is the greatness to which we aspire and the work that we're willing to put into it to achieve it, by which we will be known going forward. And this campaign holds a very special place in the history of this country every day going forward. And you have made that possible.
0: Yeah, you see how he's describing his campaign and how ethical it was. They didn't take a single dime from a single super PAC it was comprised entirely of people
2: all people all the time
0: <laughs> but then he starts like naming off right the first names of people on a staff to almost familiarize to to put some uh, imaginary faces to these uh, to these uh, shady campaign workers in the background and as he names
2: off everyone and he says every volunteer every ambassador everyone who knocked on doors Naming everyone like that creates that, yes, that's me type of feeling. You know, this is kind of like in Oprah's speech that we just did where she said, and all the women here in the room, let me talk to the women for just a moment. Okay. Now all of the women kind of lit up and whoa, she's talking about me. This is the same kind of tactic, right? When he is, he names them and he says, you know, all the ambassadors, all the volunteers, all the, you know, phone bank people. As he's naming them, then they go, oh, wow, I'm glad to be acknowledged. But really, you know, he, he might not be able to acknowledge every single you know, individual person you know, as he's doing this. And
0: almost frames the entire thing as this, this epic struggle and that the campaign holds a place in history, uh, in the history of our country going forward. And all of you have made that possible. So it's sort of building the individual efforts into a more epic narrative. Right.
2: And we hear him using these, you know, the proud. I'm so effing proud of you guys right now. One of the things about swearing like that is that it activates very primal centers of our brain. It kind of wakes people up and it has to be used judiciously and it has to be used in a way that, you know, makes sense. In fact, for most politicians, I would say this is completely off limits Um, what happened is that, you know, for example, uh, Ben Jealous in Maryland who just lost the, uh, the Maryland gubernatorial race. Um, he had a clip there where he was a reporter asked him a question and he said, you know, do I look like this? You know, F no. And it became basically a PR disaster. Okay. But I guarantee you. Beto's not going to lose a single vote over saying it this way because of the context and because of how he says it. Um, and so he's able to get away with this, even though it's kind of like, isn't that rule number one of the politician playbook? Like you don't use, you know, curse words uh, as as you're actually saying things. Um, and we hear him saying this, you know, uh, it doesn't matter who you love, you know, if you pray, if you don't pray at all. Who you voted for last time, who we voted for last time, none of that small stuff matters now. What is different about now? None of that small stuff, that small stuff, in other words, he's a disassociative language, okay? That small stuff, none of, that's again a universal quantifier, none of those, that small stuff matters now. And what exactly is the now that he's referring to? Like, is it because they've gotten through this campaign? Is it, you know, again, it's like he just lost, but he's still running. How does this happen?
0: All right. And so now how does he end this speech? Let's get to the speech? Let's get to the finale.
1: But just know this. I am forever. I am forever changed in the most profoundly positive way. I am forever grateful to every single one of you for making this possible. I believe in you, I believe in Texas, I believe in this country. And I love you more than words can express and that love will persist every single day going forward, making sure that whatever we have created, whatever we have changed, and all of us will decide what that means and how far it goes, that it leads something far greater than what we have today. And then all of us, every single one of us, continue to believe and make possible the greatness of the United States of America. I am honored to have been able to do this with you. I am grateful forever and we will see you out there down the road. Thank you, El Paso. Thank you, Texas. Thank you, every single one of you for making this possible. I am grateful. I am grateful. Thank you.
0: Wow, a lot of repetition there. Yeah, it's such a it's such a heartfelt speech, too. It really sounds like there are parts in there that aren't very rehearsed. But one thing that I guarantee you was rehearsed is that he says... Something to the effect of, all of you will decide what that change was right. and how far it will go.
2: That was a key moment.
0: Exactly. He's alluding to perhaps a presidential run, maybe another Senate run, because there's, a, there's another Senate race in Texas coming up in a little bit. Who knows?
2: And much more than what we have today, is so we have that comparative deletion, more in what way? How is that exactly going to be filled in? And everyone in the audience gets to fill in their own picture, uh, like we've been talking about. And, you know, one other thing about this speech, again, just so we can kind of uh, keep the scorecard here on what everyone's doing, uh, I love you, okay? What did Ted Cruz say? We love you, right? So it's this idea of they really copy off of each other and they really take things from each other's playbook and, you know, hearing how the speeches, you know, go through and, you know, it's interesting that in Texas, there's so much of the you know "I love you" and we love you" type of stuff. You know, going going through, and you know, again, so much of the swearing. And so, the next speech that we're going to be talking about here is from Ayanna Presley, and this speech is uh, a really impassioned, very powerful speech. And Ayanna Presley is the first Black woman who is has been elected as representative in Massachusetts. She was elected to the House. And so she's going to be talking about the history of the moment. I want you to notice the rhetorical devices and how many of these rhetorical devices have been used in so many other speeches that we have done here on the podcast. So many other of the great rhetorical or, or, you know, speeches in history that you can go back and listen to and just notice how she's using all these things themes and combining them together. So here are some things to listen for in this speech since we've been talking about these, okay? One is, what is the general style that she's using? So is she more expressive and emotional? Is she more uh, calm and reserved? You know, people have a spectrum there. What's the motivation direction? Meaning, is she toward and about possibility? Is she away from and about pain and running away from pain and, you know, being the underdog type of thing like that? And what is her message? Was it that she's really trying to communicate through a theme, whether she says it or not, and whether the words she says actually seed that theme underneath it? So let's go ahead and take a listen to this one.
3: To the volunteers and the broad and diverse coalition of voters, disruptors, believers, resistors, persisters... Activists and agitators that brought us to this very moment And I am so honored and humbled to share both the ballot and the stage with the many visionary bold women who have raised their hand to run for public office Now listen, I know for a fact, none of us ran to make history. We ran to make change. However, the historical significance of this evening is not lost on me. The significance of history is not lost on me, including my personal one. Tonight, I'm reminded of my mother, my Shiro, the woman who gave me my roots and my wings. You see, Sandy Presley was a super voter. She voted in every election, and no matter how small we felt at times in community and society at large, my mother made sure I knew that when we walked into that voting booth and we pulled that curtain, that we were powerful.
0: Now, this is a really great speech, especially if you listen to our last episode where we talked about some of the code switching and coded language that Oprah used, especially when speaking to um, uh, black women voters. Now here again, we uh, hear her really speaking some of that code right there. She talks about um, uh, uh, about her mother being a shiro and uh, and giving her her roots and her wings, which is a little bit more sort of gospely Sunday, uh, you know, uh, Wednesday evening church stuff. Um, and it really brings back a lot of sort of cultural. History, a sort of cultural narrative that people can pick and choose from all of the positive things to then imbue upon uh, the speaker. And we hear here, you know, we started off this
2: episode talking about that a lot of the speeches that were given and we listened to a lot of speeches in preparation for this, a lot of the speeches that were given were basically just thank you. Thank you to this person. Thank you to that person. Thank you to the other one. And we hear Presley doing a thank you here as well, but notice how she does it. Notice the way she is thanking her mother. Okay, she's going into into that. But she uses the thank you to her mother to demonstrate a point she uses it to demonstrate the super voter point. You know, my mother made sure I knew that we were powerful, very similar to Oprah's speech, 100% agree. And then we also hear a similarity here to what we listen to Oprah doing, where if you remember, Oprah had that quote where she said uh, that people have been repressed, oppressed, suppressed, right? She had that that rhythm where she was taking the first part of a word and then breaking it apart. And now here we hear Ayanna Presley saying the disruptors, the believers, the resistors, the pur sisters, activists and agitators. And so she's purposely doing that to establish a rhythm, to establish a cadence. And when you get that rhythm and cadence into a person's mind, that's when people start to feel the warm fuzzies. Okay. They're starting to feel really good because they're going into a hypnotic state. And as they're feeling really good, they're feeling wonderfully refreshed, they're feeling, you know, wonderful in every way. The messages that she's giving, she's seating them right underneath uh,
0: all of that. And again, just like in Oprah's speech, we're talking about an underprivileged class. Many of them are, you know, women black voters uh, feeling powerful. My mother made sure I knew we were powerful. Again, just like Oprah's speech right there, uh, tying it together again. Yeah, exactly. The royal we coming in again there and uh, and talking about having that power that often um Uh, these people might not feel powerful in their everyday lives. Now,
2: in this next clip, we're going to be continuing with this theme of that kind of, hey, here's where I come from. Here are my roots. We're going to be continuing with that theme, and she's going to be raising the idea of questions, questions that went through her mind. Notice here how she's describing her personal experience, but then it's going to be applying to the group. So let's take a listen to this.
3: Tonight tonight in Massachusetts and across the country, we are standing in our power, the same power my mother told me we had, the same power that compelled me to raise my hand and to not ask permission to leave. You see, when a woman of color talks about running for higher office or public office at all, folks don't just talk about a glass ceiling. Yes, we face many of the same trials our sisters and women of all colors face when answering the call to serve. But the well-intended conversations that occur when a woman of color seeks public office take on a texture all their own. Is your appeal broad enough? Are you playing identity politics? Can you really inspire millennials and the faith-based community? Can a congresswoman wear her hair in braids, rock a black leather jacket,
0: And she doesn't even have to finish that. What we've got is um, a lot of, well, first off, straw man arguments, because she's building up people saying things that, of course, they can't defend themselves. And she's able to sort of use that over and over and over as repetition to reinforce her messaging. But what really caught me about her speech here, if you listen closely throughout the speech... The way that she says her words, and she sort of hangs on to them a little bit longer than uh, than one might normally do, and this sort of soaring speech, this soaring way of of trailing off her words, it's almost like a sermon for like a black church. I think about the times when I'll go into a black church on Sunday morning and hear the pastor speak in just the same way, hanging on to those words, letting them trail off almost to allow the message to sink in and to get you to introspectively reflect on what she's saying and give it a little bit more weight.
2: Right. That's a very, very powerful tonal device in being able to really let those words hang on a little bit more. And you know, that's, that's absolutely true. We hear this thematic structure being built up and the whole speech is thematic, just like Oprah's speech, just like, just like all of these speeches have a theme, you know, going with them. This speech is especially similar to the one given by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And in that we hear this very similar underdog type of theming, okay? Um, we talk about the, the trials, okay? Was there an actual trial? Well, perhaps not, but she talks about trials. What are the trials? This idea of sisters, okay? We heard Oprah go back to that idea of sisters and the call to serve, And I really like this part where she says, there are those well-intended conversations when a woman of color seeks public office, they take on a texture all of their own. Now, which texture Mm -hmm. exactly is that? You know, so what we've got there is what we would call a kinesthetic predicate. In other words, it's a feeling word, okay? It's a texture. It's something which they're actually, you know, feeling. And then she begins this idea of the questioning, right? Can you do this? Is it this? And Of course, she's answering her own questions. But what she's doing is she's building up this historical context now so that she can say, hey, here we are in the new world. This is the way things have been. This is where I've come from. And now we're in the new world. And as we're continuing here into the next clip, what we're going to be hearing is how she really cements that new world using a tremendous amount of metaphor, a tremendous amount of symbols, you know, uh, really listen to how she does this, because when you're using idioms or when you're using symbols or when you're using uh, metaphors, really that is appealing to the subdominant hemisphere of the brain. It's appealing to that aspect of a person that's creative, that doesn't think too logically, that just wants to succeed at an emotional level. Let's take a listen to this one.
3: When it comes to women of color candidates, folks don't just talk about a glass ceiling, what they describe is a concrete one. But you know what breaks through concrete? Seismic shifts. Drastic change. When those tectonic plates of revolution shift below our feet, when our communities deserve and these times require bold vision, activist leadership, a movement builds and the citizen activist rises, and a force, they are a force to be reckoned with. than any one person or any institution. It builds up from the ground beneath our feet and this groundswell, this shift, can break through concrete. Today, with the women that I have the honor of sharing this ballad with in this stage, today we broke that concrete wide open. And yet, I have no intentions of delivering a victory speech. What I'm offering is a vision. One where together we can break cycles of poverty, break and rebuild a criminal legal system that actually delivers justice. One where we can break through and affirm the rights of our transgender friends and neighbors. One where we can break through and create an economy where one job is enough. One where we can break through and create a commonwealth in a country where the next generation's dreams aren't sabotaged by crippling student debt.
2: And wow, here we hear these powerful metaphors being applied. All right, so let's break this down. So there's the content of what she's describing, which is being a woman of color, running for office, having that be a difficult process. But listen to the way in which she describes it. The glass ceiling is a concrete one. Dot, dot, dot. But what we want is drastic change. And you know what breaks through concrete? Seismic shifts. Tectonic plates of revolution shift below our feet. And so she's, and then, you know, today we broke that concrete wide open. Now, here's what I want for everyone to, to notice about this is that because we've talked a lot about metaphors and analogies this is a particularly good one and here is basically what happens inside of a person's brain when this is going on Um, this is something that comes from the field uh, of the study of embodied cognition and it's a particular thing called scaffolding and scaffolding is this idea that our higher mental processes our abstract mental processes are grounded or rooted in our early sensory motor experiences. So when we're talking about, for example, earlier on her speech, she's talking about raising her hand up. I, you know, I rose, I raised my hand. That is something that is an abstract idea, but it's also a very foundational body idea. Right, so there's this idea of the ground beneath our feet breaking open, and so you know if a person has lived in a place with earthquakes, or if they've felt some sort of shatter beneath the ground, or if they've just felt someone walking quickly among the ground, that's a very early experience. Like we don't have to go too far in life before we experience something similar to a shaking or a, you know, a ground uh, breaking up. And so what she's doing is she's linking this to a higher thought process. She's linking this to this idea of not just the groundbreaking on a physical level, but breaking ground at a mental level. Okay, now this is where we start to get a little bit persuasive because when we're talking about breaking ground at a mental level, then what do we hear her saying with her her language? We're going to break this. We're going to break that. And then we're going to break through... This other thing, we're going to break through that other thing. Now, a breakthrough, as people talk about it, has nothing to do with breaking wood or metal or it has nothing to do with breaking glass or concrete. A breakthrough is a mental achievement, a victory. And notice how you can't hear one without hearing the other. So when someone's using that word breakthrough or break, break, especially when she set it up like this, you can't hear only the higher level process you have to also hear the other experience and so that's that's what makes this particular metaphor this particular type of analogy so very rich and so very powerful
0: right and listen to her tonality as she's going through it again just like you know she's doing that scaffolding she's also raising her voice and building upon that momentum as she's saying each thing with a little bit more energy than the last one now she's very subdued she has a very subdued personality, but a very deliberate one, and one that you can hear that deliberate energy grow with each statement.
2: Yeah, our communities deserve and these times require. You know, I listen to that and it's like, wait a second, something here is going on. Our communities deserve and these times require. So this is a noun verb, noun verb, right? Communities deserve deserve times require but she says it in such a cadence that it really makes it even more powerful so this and that and this and that um and the other part of this that she's going to begin to allude now as we get into this next clip she's going to she's going to go back to this theme but she just mentioned it now which is so I didn't come here to give you a victory speech I came here to give you a vision and so she's going to go back to that uh here in the next clip
3: I have a vision to break through. You see, we've spent months on the campaign trail working to give folks a reason to believe, something to vote for. We have met people where they are in community, at coffee shops and bodegas, in church basements and on front porches. Together we have shared our fears and our hopes. And although we have talked about the current occupant in the White House coming at us like a locomotive to roll back every civil right, protection, and freedom we have fought for and earned, and we have talked about the threats to our families, our safety, our very autonomy over our bodies, and the life-saving health care we need. And together we have also dreamed of what is possible. We have been audacious enough to redefine this moment in time. We have affirmed that while this could go down as the darkest time in our history, we won't let it be. And instead, we will be defined by our hopes, not our fears. We have been bold. We have been bold in our vision, and clear in our convictions, lifting up and affirming what we are for, equity, justice, equality. So I didn't come here to deliver a victory speech tonight, only one of vision. And when we realize equity, justice and equality, these rights for everyone, then and only then will I deliver a victory speech.
0: Wow. And we're right there as she's wrapping up this entire speech and she's going to now define it again, not a victory speech, a vision. And you have to think that. She's going to try and bring this somewhere else after. Is she going to run for Senate? Is she going to run for president? What is she alluding to here? This vision, how is she going to make it a reality? All of these things sort of build up their natural thoughts to have when somebody is talking this way. And the other big thing, and I'm sure Taylor can go into a lot more specifics on this, but what she's doing is she's calling back to a lot of other famous speeches. MLK, Biden, Obama, she's really bringing it all out. And and I don't know if they were the first ones to say all of these things, but she is now calling back to, again, that shared culture, that shared history. Right. She's going
2: back to that idea of, you know, we have dreamed of what is
0: possible. Well, that's, you know,
2: Martin Luther King's, I have a dream speech. And, you know, we hear here this idea of being defined by our hopes, not our fears. Well, who says hope a lot? Well, that's Obama, right? He's, he's all about, you know, we're defined by our hopes, we're not defined our, by our fears. And then we also hear um, that idea of, you know, the darkest time in history, right? Remember that that speech we did of, uh, of Biden, where Biden was talking about friends were walking down a very dark path. In this dark path and right, there's all of the imagery and the imagery is thematic. Now, it doesn't mean that she had to study all of these speeches in order to put this in her speech, because these are universal human experiences. But it is interesting to notice how the same themes that come out of certain other speeches now make their way into her. So, you know, talking about the darkest time in history. The, think about that. Think about the significance of that statement, the darkest time in history, and we won't let it be. And, you know, is that really true? Is it really true we're in the darkest time in history? Probably not. You know, that, that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense, especially given her whole speech here about being a woman of color and the glass ceiling and the concrete ones. Like, this is definitely not the darkest time of history, given she just got elected. Um but, you know, we hear you know again that idea of the vision and that powerful reframe, you know it's it's so powerful because, like people said, "Oh, this is her victory speech. this this was the conversation in their head. This is her victory speech." So then she said it and she set it up, and then right at the end, it's not a victory speech, it's a vision, And I'm only gonna give that victory speech when dot dot dot, and we don't know when the actual um other part of it actually you know flows through
0: right. When's exactly. that ever going to happen? Again, back to back to Ocasio Cortez and how you know the big the big narrative here is that Democrats don't want their base to become complacent, knowing that they just had a, a exactly. victory, and so what they continue to do is to build in that that uh, beleaguered underdog status, which to a certain degree is true, but they don't want Democrats dwelling on this win too much. Now, with a great speech like this. Um, Everything, all good things need to come to an end. Uh, And we'll get here to the last portion.
3: Tonight is just the beginning. Don't allow anyone to tell you that as a democratic party, we have to choose. Don't allow anyone to tell you that we have to moderate our ambitions or compromise our values, no matter how sobering the landscape We are the party of workers' rights, and immigrants' rights, and women's rights. And people of color. And we are the party of survivors' rights. reasons we don't have to wait our turn we don't have to wait for change tonight we pick up the mantle we continue to work working to restore your hope to restore your trust to redeem your relationship with government i still believe in the power of us and change is on the way
2: and we hear this very very powerful ending from here here you know, talking about, and one thing to notice at the end there is is that she uses what I like to call the escalator tonality, which is that her voice slowly rises. It starts from a very small kind of a volume, and then she rises it up a little bit more, and then a little bit more, and she she builds it up all the way to the end until its change is on the way.
0: Yeah, she's really getting into it now. You can almost hear a little bit of Obama in her speech right there, and she you know is giving this this glorious speech that that's not a victory speech but it certainly sounds like one tonight is just the beginning and again calling back to common themes and and sort of common shared uh narrative she broadens it out to being that Democrats and what does this mean for the party as Democrats who are the party of this and the party of that and the party of this and everybody gets more worked up and more worked up because you know, they know that these other things are true. And so it, it, it's really a great way to build that excitement and build that enthusiasm by talking about all of the other things that they're excited and enthused about.
2: Yeah, and getting into this idea of Democrats are the party of immigrants' rights, workers' rights. And, you know, all of this, of course, is, well, didn't Ted Cruz, you know, say in the in his clip that, well, that uh, what he was running for was workers' rights, right? It was that whole idea of the oil workers and, you know, talking about that. Um, And then she says, you know, survivor's rights. Well, you know, survivor's rights has become the callback to sexual assault, you know, victims. And so that's really what that means. But think about all the other things that a survivor could be, right? What does it mean to be a survivor? Well, it means this whole idea of being an underdog. Okay, if you're a survivor, you must have gone through some really, really bad stuff and come out the other end and now... See, now it is the hero's journey arc again. Now it is the arc of moving through and being able to finish at the end and really get your pot of gold, really get, as Oprah said, the crown on your head, okay, to really get that gift, that right in which you had as your birthright, but you were just denied up until
0: now. All right. I think that's about all the time we've got for today be sure to visit our website at subliminallycorrect.com. Uh, head on over to our Patreon and donate. You can support the show for as little as three bucks a month to buy us some coffee. And if you like the show and you want to give us a little bit of feedback, head on over to Twitter. You can tweet at us at subliminalpod or you can go to our Facebook page, subliminally Correct, and comment there. Uh, send us your questions, send us your feedback and we might even read some on the air. And we'll see you next time.